I want to welcome you to the live stream. This live stream is just one part of our Sunday worship gathering. And if you'd like to join us via Zoom for our, our whole service, you can email us at info at city-temple.com. We're also meeting live in the City Temple Sanctuary, and you are welcome to join us here as well. And now we are privileged and honored to hear the word of God from Pastor Rod. Well, good morning, everybody. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Habakkuk chapter 2 and uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Habakkuk's a great book. It's fun to say, uh, and it's a good book to read too, I guess. Um, and uh, this is continuing in our series, Ancient Words for a New Day. And it's just some things that the Lord is speaking to us from the Old Testament for the times in which we live today. And it's amazing uh, how God's word applies so clearly. Before we read, let's bow in prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would just speak to us by your Holy Spirit to the glory and honor of Jesus through your word today. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would rest on me, that I could bring your word to your people boldly and faithfully through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2, we're going to start reading with verse 1, and uh, we'll read down into chapter 3. Habakkuk's writing here, and he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, that is God, will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. <clears throat> it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine or wealth is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a tower with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, 
and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigianath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then over to Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Since 2008, I've been waiting for something really, really bad to happen. I've also, by the way, been praying that, uh, that God will send revival and been praying with confidence that God is going to send revival. I remember with the economic crash of 2008 and how devastating it was for us as a church and for many people in our society and how difficult it was and how it was all founded and what it all happened because of what the Bible calls dishonest weights and measures. And we saw that throughout the economic system. And I kept thinking, surely this is going to collapse. I remember I even took some money out of my bank account 
uh, to stash away under my proverbial mattress, so don't come to my house looking for it because it's not there. But, uh, you know, I, I thought, okay, if, if the banks start collapsing, we're going to have to have some money. And nothing happened. In fact, it turned around and we entered into one of the greatest bull markets of economic history, uh, which has, has run up until the time of the pandemic. But still, you know, I felt like with the American government, there were issues going on. Here in the UK, there were issues going on in governance. And you just felt like something's going to happen. It can't hold up. And yet it kept going and kept going. And then, uh, then we had uh, a new president that came in. And some people loved Trump. Some people hated Trump. I try to, to be Trump uh, neutral as much as I possibly can uh, uh, on that. And, and so you, you kind of question, okay, was he a good president or a bad president? It's kind of immaterial now because he's not the president. But now the president has just led the United States into one of the most disastrous foreign policy crises in its entire history. As they've come out of Afghanistan in just about the worst way possible, and where you know our TV screens are filled, our computer screens are filled. TV screens shows you how old I am. Uh, are, are filled with the images, and you seem we seem to have a president in the United States that is utterly clueless as to what's going on. But then we have the whole uh, crisis that's happened from COVID and this coronavirus pandemic. And there's been so much suffering and difficulty and death that's come through that. And, and so in, in some respects, though, this has just been a continuation of all the things that I've been sensing in my spirit that were bubbling up since 2008. And it's not finished yet, by the way. Uh, there are going to be some tougher times ahead. Uh, we don't exactly know what those are yet. But those things are coming. Mind you, they are coming. But at the same time, I still am absolutely confident that revival is going to come. That we're going to see an awakening. And that absolutely an awakening is the only hope for our nation and the only hope for the West as we know it. We need to have an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. But, you know, I've felt since 2008 that what's going on was absolutely unsustainable. And what has been happening is absolutely unsustainable. It's unsustainable to, for a nation to be accumulating the kinds of debt that we've been accumulating. It's unsustainable for the economic system, which is not capitalism right now, by the way, for the economic system to go on as it has. It's unsustainable. But one of the things you learn from history one of the great lessons of history is that unsustainable things can last longer than you anticipate. And that's surely been the case here, and it's surely been the case with COVID and its aftermath. And frankly, it all makes me identify quite a bit with Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk is prophesying into a time where he is witnessing the decline of uh, Israel and Judah and the empire. The, Judah just had Josiah uh, as the king. It was a, a good time 
for Judah. But then things started to shift and started to change. Josiah died, and the whole nation was starting to fall apart uh, governmentally, economically. And also the Chaldeans had come in and had taken over. And so he's in this kind of situation. He's seen this crisis. He probably lived through the glory days of Josiah. And now all of this is happening. And not only is all of this happening around him in, uh, in you know, the Jewish society of the day, but it seems like God is using the Chaldeans to discipline them. You know, so how is it that God is using, you know, a, a, a pagan nation to discipline his chosen people? And so he's been wrestling with this and crying out. The Chaldeans were the Neo-Babylonian Empire. They rose to power in the late 7th century, uh, and they controlled Jerusalem until about 538 B.C. So Habakkuk, he sees the righteous in his day surrounded and swallowed up by the wicked, both God's people who are acting wickedly and the people who are not God's people who are acting wickedly. He's crying out to God. He's challenging God. He's asking God that question that you got to learn. You never get the answer you want. And that's the question, why? But the guy is asking the question. And by the way, God doesn't mind it when you ask the question. Just be careful because you might be uncomfortable with the answer he gives you. So he's struggling, he's wrestling here, he's challenging God, and in this passage where we read, he finally says, okay, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take up my post here. I'm going to be, I'm a watchman, I'm a prophet, so I'm going to stay here. It's like, almost like a little child saying, I'm going to hold my breath, God, until you answer me. Now, if you don't know this already, know that God always wins that contest. He can hold his breath a lot longer than you can hold yours. I found that through my experience. So he's crying out, he's watching, and then God shows him what is going to happen. But God challenges him and says, listen, you are going to have to live in faithfulness for the long run because this is not going to be something that happens overnight. He says, write this down so you can run with it, so you can share it, but you need to hold on to it because it's going to take some time for this to unfold. And he was in a society at the time, this whole passage about wine as a mocker, wealth. He's in a society that's obsessed with wealth. Wine is actually a metaphor for wealth. And in many, uh, many of the versions of the Old Testament, the word wealth is used there instead of wine. So now you can see we are in a situation very similar to the situation that Habakkuk was in. And we can learn about this situation and how to deal with it and understand better what is happening by looking at this passage that we looked at from Habakkuk. Because we're living in a time when our society is filled with what the Bible calls iniquity. Now, iniquity, remember, is that word for sin that means sin that comes out of our brokenness. It's a different word 
than the intentional word to say, God, I'm going to disobey you. It's a word that means we're messed up, and because we're so messed up, we tend to do bad things and wrong things. That's what iniquity is all about. And we live right now, as Habakkuk did, in a society that's filled with iniquity and in a society where God's people struggle to thrive. So how do we thrive in this? How do we learn from Habakkuk about what's going on around us? I think the first thing we need is that we need to see and understand what is happening in our society in terms of five sin clusters that destroy a society and its wealth. There are five sin clusters that uh, God identifies here in Habakkuk that historically, you can look throughout history, if these five sin clusters are present, they will destroy a society and its wealth eventually. Remember, unsustainable things can last a lot longer than you think. But eventually, these things will destroy society. Now by a sin cluster, I mean a circumstance, situation, or a system where various sins tend to converge, having a harmful influence exponentially greater than the individual sins. Now let me explain. Uh, take, for example, a club. A lot of people have missed clubbing during coronavirus. I've not been one of those people. Uh, it's not that I'm against people dancing to very loud music. You know, I, I've danced to very loud Christian music before, but I guarantee you, you don't want to see me dancing. I can, I can use the excuse that I was so sick, I can't dance anymore. I used to be a great dancer. But, but uh, no, that would be a lie. So I can't tell you a lie while I'm preaching the word. So, okay, uh, let's, let's take that. But a club, I mean, think about a club. There's nothing wrong with loud music, necessarily. There's nothing wrong with dancing. But what happens in a club is you get a bunch of people together and you get maybe some young woman that never in her life would dream of taking her clothes off in front of a guy she doesn't know. All of a sudden, she comes into this experience and there's alcohol and there's drugs and there's a heightened sense of sexuality. And before she knows it, she's drawn into a one-night stand that has disastrous consequences. That's a sin cluster. It's not that the club in and of itself was a sin, but that sins tend to cluster together. Those individual sins come together and the impact or the influence of a cluster of sins is greater than just the individual sins would be. I hope that makes sense. Because it's a very powerful force that we need to understand. And the woes that Habakkuk mentions here, woes are the inevitable consequences of these sin clusters in a society. And it will affect everyone in the society to one degree or another, even those who walk in righteousness. And we should understand that. We're seeing that. But there is woe, and woe is not a pleasant word. Now notice, the woe is not always specified, but woe will come 
where there are sin clusters. And Habakkuk identifies five sin clusters that we certainly see today. The first one is there in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 2, and it's what I'd call excessive debt. Excessive debt. Now, I'm not going to go through this uh, in, in great detail because that would take us too long uh, to look at it every uh, passage in depth there. But uh, it's excessive debt, especially that which results from the plunder of other peoples and their resources. So you go to, say, a, a, a shop and you charge up your credit card to buy new clothes that are made in a sweatshop in another developing nation and you have to then pay off that debt over a length of time. That's excessive debt. You know, when we're living off our credit cards, that's excessive debt. We're talking here mostly about what we'd call consumer debt. That's not necessarily debt to buy a house. Everybody has to do that. Or even necessarily debt to buy an automobile, although we should probably avoid that when we can. But excessive debt always is a sin cluster and it brings a, a group of things together like greed, like covetousness. All of these things tend to cluster together thinking that we have to go into excessive debt and the consequence, according to Habakkuk, to God in Habakkuk, is that you shall be plundered. Eventually, that debt will be demanded from you. And that's going to happen. We're going to have a significant correction due to the excessive debt globally, not only in our society. The second sin cluster is there in verses 9 to 11. And we can identify this as unjust gain. Unjust gain. This is getting money and wealth and resources by taking advantage of the many for the benefit of the few. It involves exploiting people. It involves what we call dishonest weights and measures. You know, where a government devalues its currency so it can pay off its debt using something that's of less value than what you had before. It's unfair labor practices, such as paying your employees too little, or mistreating your employees, requiring them to work a hundred hour a week, and saying, well, that's too bad if you're suffering. Uh, it's too bad if you're having a hard time. We give you a lot of money, so you shouldn't complain. Now, that kind of thing is unjust gain. And our banks are rife with it. I won't point to any building that's behind me right now. Our banks are rife with it. Our society is filled with it. And unjust gain, you see it in so many corporations that are making billions and billions of, of pounds or dollars and paying their staff as little as possible while their, their oligarch leaders become excessively wealthy. You see it, that's unjust gain. It's unjust gain. Now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with having money and resources. And there's nothing wrong with having wealthy people in your society, by the way. The problem is where there is unjust gain. And the consequences will be shame for your house. And by your house here is meant not only you personally, but your family 
and also your business. And we see that. How many times have the, uh, the ultra-wealthy who have gotten wealthy because of unjust gain, and not everybody who is wealthy has gotten wealthy unjustly, by the way. But how often has we see, have we seen that and their children and their grandchildren just go completely off the rails and their life is a mess? That's a shame on their house, their business, their family. Ultimately, they forfeit their life. They forfeit what is really precious and valuable to them. How many times have you heard somebody on their deathbed or close to death say, you know, I worked so much and I gained so much, but I lost my children. I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I wish I hadn't had four marriages, but would have stayed with the first one. All these are things that you hear. And these are the consequences, according to Habakkuk, of unjust gain. The third sin cluster in a society is what we might call systemic iniquity. This is in verses 12 to 14. It happens when you build your social structures on violence or on brokenness, on iniquity in the society. Uh, we can see this around us. You know, for example, if you watch what's happening in the educational system in some respects and, and how teachers are now having to edu educate children about things like sexting and the images that are going around. How messed up are we when that is an issue as a society? And how teachers are being called upon now to do things that in a healthy society would be done by the Church of Jesus Christ, would be done by the parents. And yet, that's happening all around us. Or how we have, you know, just redone the whole concept of marriage. Or how we talk about systemic racism or systemic oppression. And there is racism around. And we can see it. Or we can see oppression. We can see it in some of the, the ways of taxation that oppress the poor or the advantage of the wealthy. I'll never forget when the congestion charge in London was first instituted. How a very wealthy friend of mine said, hey, I don't mind paying uh, this amount every day to get all those other people off the road. And this is a Christian guy. Not even recognizing that it was a regressive tax on the poor that are forced to live within the zone. But we see that that's a systemic iniquity that is around us. We can see it in, in other ways where people in the system engage in what the, the scripture calls bloodshed. But, uh, you know, bloodshed can happen on social media without any blood at all. We can see how people are absolutely destroyed. They're attacked with the desire to kill and they're threatened with death sometimes just for taking an opinion that's different from someone else's opinion. I was just reading an article yesterday about how hospitality staff in Cornwall were experiencing an exponential increase in abusive treatment toward them. You know, a society 
that abuses those that are trying to serve them is a society bound up in systemic iniquity. Or how NHS staff get yelled at routinely. I could tell you some stories. And the consequence, according to the Scripture, when that happens, when there's systemic iniquity, you labor for fire. Now what is that? What is fire? Fire is that which consumes all the stuff that you have. We've seen that lived out in the forest fire areas around the globe right now, where the fire comes in, destroys homes, possessions, everything in its way. And God is saying that when there's systemic iniquity in a society, people are going to labor, they're going to work hard, but ultimately everything they work for will just be consumed and you'll weary yourself for nothing. Now, isn't that happening all around us? Isn't that happening all around us? And then the fourth, the fourth sin cluster is uh, using a good old-fashioned word, debauchery. Debauchery. Now, that's a great word. Uh, it means, uh, well, we used to say sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but I like rock and roll, so uh, we can't say it quite like that. But you kind of get the idea. That's kind of debauchery. It's, a, it's the combination of drunkenness and drugs and sex and partying and doing things openly that at one point in time would have been considered shameful. And we can see that all around us in our society. You can see it on the screens. I don't have to go into details about it. And the consequences, according to Habakkuk here, is that there will be shame instead of glory. Shame instead of glory. You'll be revealed for what you are and what this is, the emptiness of it. And there will be an increase in violence to people and to the planet and to our cities. Haven't we seen that? Haven't we seen an increase in violence with teenage children being stabbed to death by other teenage children? caught up in drugs and other things. And then the final, the final sin cluster that Habakkuk mentions here, which again is prevalent in our society, is idolatry. But in this case, it's not really how we normally think of idolatry. I might do a sermon on that as part of this series, but idolatry is basically here living and structuring your society without reference to God and God's ways. One of the reasons why England has been so strong and the United Kingdom has been so strong is that one of the early kings of England, and I, I never get his name right, so I'm not even going to try. One of the early kings of England decided that the laws of England should be built on the Ten Commandments. A lot of people don't realize that. But historically, for 12, 1,300 years at least, the laws of this nation have been built on the Word of God. They've been constructed around God's will and God's ways as revealed in God's Word. And that's one of the reasons why our society is still strong and many of our laws are still founded on this basis, but it's changing rapidly. No longer are we trying to seek God's will for our school 
or God's will for our families, or God's will for our businesses, or God's will for our communities. Instead, we're trying to structure our lives and structure our society without having to refer to God at all. Thinking that we could do that and be successful at it, thinking that we know what we're doing and what we're talking about, but it's just like saying, I'm going to build this wooden thing and asking it to speak to me. It's not going to happen. And it won't happen in any society. And the consequences are that you won't learn. And the people of the society will not learn how to live. And there'll be no breath, there'll be no life, there'll be no spirit in that society. And these woes will all come on a society founded on these five, or, or with these five sin clusters prevalent in that society. And when you look historically, that will prove to be true. In the collapse of every society, you will find all or most of these five sin clusters operating. Now the danger here at this stage in time is to sound really doom and gloom. But you know, I'm not doom and gloom. This is a reality, and it's a reality that we're living in. At some point in time, the woes will happen. I promise you. We will see them, and we have been seeing them already. We have been seeing them. You can see them even when you look at the situation in Afghanistan. But I'm not doom and gloom, especially for us as people. But we need to know, how do you live in this context? Because the one thing that God's saying here to, to Habakkuk is, Habakkuk, you are not going to change this by yourself. You are not going to correct this. You are not going to be the one that challenges this. You are not going to be the one who makes the, the difference and everything turns around. You're not going to do that. And it's like, oh gosh, well then, how do I live? What do I do? If that's the case, what am I supposed to do? And God says, hey, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Or you might say, the righteous shall live by faithfulness. By faith or by faithfulness. It's the only way to live in a society where the presence of these sin clusters is so prevalent. It's the only way to live in such a way that when the woes happen, they affect you as little as possible. It is the only way to live in order to make a difference in the world around you. It's the only way to live in order to see other people around you, friends and relatives, set free from some of this. It's the only way to live. The righteous, the just, those who have been set right with God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, the righteous shall live by their faith, by their faithfulness. Now remember how we define faith. Faith is choosing to trust and to act, often beyond your own natural ability, based on a true knowledge 
of God and God's ways, founded in God's Word, and, and, and revealed in a relationship with God, the Father, through the Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what faith is all about. Choosing to trust and act based on a true knowledge of God and God's ways. One of the big problems that we face in the church today is that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but the Jesus they follow has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. The God they worship is not the God of the Scriptures, but a God of their own imagining. And that kind of faith is not the faith that will enable us to live. And this faith, or this faithfulness, it requires endurance. It requires obedience. And it requires that we refuse to back down, according to the writer of Hebrews. At this point in time, everybody should have in their minds uh, the Johnny Cash version of the song, I won't back down. I can't sing low anymore. Uh, just look it up on Spotify. And just put it on your playlist and just get it there. You know, uh, you can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. That's got to be our attitude. That's got to be our attitude. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to continue in faith. There is nothing that's going to stop me until I die and go to be before the Lord. The righteous will live by faith. And that's the, the idea. That's where you have your life is in your faith and in your faithfulness. Now this faith will lead us in living in ways that actually overcome these sin clusters. You know, in, in terms of uh, excessive debt. If you live by faith, you'll stay out of debt, especially consumer debt. Don't take it on. If you have problems with your credit cards, cut them up. Or if you only have a temporary problem, put them in the freezer. You know, if you freeze your credit card, it won't work for a few days. Do what you need to do. Stay out of debt. In terms of unjust gain, how do we live? You're living by faith. You'll do what Wesley told us to do. Earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. I mean, that's Christian economics. Be righteous in business. Do the right thing in your workplace. If you're a boss, live righteously and, and lead righteously in your workplace. People don't have to even know you're a Christian for you to lead righteously. If, uh, if you're dealing with the systemic iniquity, and a lot of that we can't change, but we can know God and God's ways and live according to them and then promote that righteousness in our society in the ways that God opens up before us. I think one of the great ways that we can promote righteousness in our society is by being the church that God has called us to be. Engaging with one another righteously in a holy way. God Embody God's ways in all the systems in which you're engaged, your family, your work, the government. In terms of debauchery, you know, how do we deal with that? Well, you live with honor toward all people. Treat people with respect and dignity. Now, a lot of times Christians get this 
mindset, you know, that we need to go out and scream at the evil and the unrighteousness. You don't have to do that. God's got that. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will convict the world with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not your job, so don't do the Holy Spirit's job. But show honor and respect and love toward all people while you practice holiness and purity in your own life. That's how we overcome it. And overcoming idolatry, we just live our life fully in reference to God. In all things, we worship God alone. One of the things I love about our friends up on the Isle of Lewis, when we, we talk with them and uh, you know we get, we get a blessing, and many times you, you're coming to a, a difficult decision. Well, my friend Donald has often said, well, what did God say about that? That's an amazing question. And yet, I don't hear Christians asking that question in London that often. I've got a few of you that ask me that question. Uh, and they know that I'm not God, by the way. But <laughs> they ask for help in that. But that's the kind of thing we need to be asking each other all the time. Every moment of our life, whether we're at work, or we're at home, or we're at school, needs to be lived in reference to God and God's ways to honor our, 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 our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you do that, idolatry will have no place in your life. Idols will fall. The righteous will live by faith, by faithfulness. And that's how we live in the midst of this. And the great news of this is that God has not left us to do this by ourselves. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, setting us free, if we follow Him, from the power of sin, death, and hell. We don't have to sin. We don't have to succumb to the power of sin anymore. God has filled us with His Holy Spirit who converted us and dwells inside of us, conforming us into the image of Jesus, and then falls upon us to empower us with the ability to live for Jesus every single day in the world around us. The righteous will live by faith, by faithfulness. But we have to do that with endurance, we have to do it with obedience, and with the determination that I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. And to do this, we need to remember two promises and a prayer that come from this Habakkuk passage. Promise number one, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 14. That is a promise. The earth will be filled. That promise has not yet been fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled. It is being fulfilled. And we will see it when God pours out His Holy Spirit in the next great awakening, which will happen soon. Of course, I said it was going to happen soon back in 2008. But if the with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. 
If he says, wait a minute, that's six months. So it's soon. It's soon. It's coming. That's promise number one. Promise number two, the last verse there in chapter two. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. Now at that time, the temple was there in Jerusalem. But the temple isn't in Jerusalem anymore. The temple is the people of God. The temple is the body of Christ. The temple is the church of the living God. And God is saying in His Word that the Lord is in His holy temple right now. God is in us. God is with us through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is in you. God is with you through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not some future reality. This is not some future promise. It is an ever-present promise that we have by faith through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We don't have to look like it. We don't have to seem like it to make it true. And it indeed is true. So we have the promise the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and the Lord is in His holy temple. Those are present promises for us. So we have a prayer. And we can join ourselves and our hearts to Habakkuk's prayer here. And I'll simplify it. It's there in verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, revive your work and make it known, but remember mercy. Dear Father, please revive your work and make it known. We've heard of all the stuff that you've done. We've heard of God's miraculous revivals in the past. We've heard of how God's healed the sick and raised the dead. We've heard of all the things that God has done, how God has shifted nations how God has shifted continents. We've heard all these things. We've seen some of them. So God, what we're saying is revive your work and reveal it across the globe so that all people can see there really is a God. But when you do that, Lord, remember to be merciful. Be merciful to us. Be merciful to the people of Afghanistan. Be merciful to the people of Myanmar. Be merciful to the United States. Be merciful. And this needs to be the prayer of our heart. But we pray this prayer not with fear. We pray this prayer not shrinking back, thinking, oh God, if you will, please do this. But I don't know that you really would. No, no, don't. Do that namby-pamby kind of prayer stuff. You pray with boldness. You pray knowing this is what God is going to do. This is what God is doing. This is what God has always intended to do. And God has always done it and intended to do it through us, the body of Christ, through the church of Jesus Christ, who was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, who's been filled by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and who is living in union with Jesus Christ, and with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is our reality. And we pray 
in that reality. And let's do that right now. Father God, we have heard of the amazing things that you have done. We stand in awe of your incredible deeds, revivals and awakenings and healings and, and shifting nations and people groups and communities, all in the power of your Holy We've seen, we've heard this, we've seen some of it. We stand in awe of it. Revive this work and make it known in the nations and in our nation. Make it known in the cities and in our city. Make it known in the churches and in our church. And Father, as you do, remember mercy. Show your mercy to us. Show your mercy to our city. Show your mercy to our nation. Show your mercy to the nations of our world. Show your mercy to our world. Through your Son, Jesus Christ. For we believe it. You have made us righteous. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us now as your righteous people. So we shall live by faith by faithfulness, all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.